For the rest of us who are staying here, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're returning to our series on the Christian virtues that have shaped and characterized our denomination over the years. So our goal in this series is to continue in those things and also grow in them because they're fitting for uh, those who follow Christ, these virtues. So our focus this morning is on the virtue of encouragement, specifically the practice of building each other up with our words. There are more ways to encourage each other than, than only words. There are things like acts of love, uh, words of prophecy, and the exercise of faith. Scripture identifies all of those things as encouraging. But our focus this morning is on speaking encouragement. Uh, because Proverbs 18 reminds us that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. There's death in the words, and there's life in the words. And the Lord wants us to use our words to bring life to one another. And encouragement is one of the ways we do it. So we're going to start, we're going to learn about that. From God's Word together, our starting point is 1 Thessalonians 5.11. That's the main command. But we will start by reading in verse 8 for context. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 5, 8-11, and then we'll pray. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as the God of endurance and encouragement, which is what Paul said about you in Romans 15. In you is everything that we need to endure and to be encouraged in all of our situations in life. And you know what those situations are for us, for each one of us, and, and where we need encouragement. And we trust that you are present to give it to us, that you intend to give it to us through Jesus who purchased it for us on the cross. And so we gratefully receive it from you today. We, we listen for your voice. We listen for what you have to say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first 30 years of Christianity, when the church was just beginning to expand away from Jerusalem, there was a man who was a key person that the Lord used to do that. He was a key player in the uh, great commission of bringing the gospel to the nations. You may not recognize his name. His name was Joseph. Here's what we know about Joseph and his activities. He sold a piece of property and gave the money to the apostles so that they could distribute it to those in need. 
Later, he was instrumental in persuading the apostles that Saul, the persecutor of the church, was now Saul, the gospel preacher. Sometime later, this same Joseph is the one that the apostles sent to Antioch to give leadership to the new church that was happening there among Jews and Gentiles. And it was this same Joseph who went to recruit Saul to come there also and help with the leadership. And then when it came time to send out the missionaries to the ends of the earth, the Holy Spirit set apart Joseph and Saul to be those pioneering missionaries. These are the things that Joseph did, except that we don't know him by that name. Because the apostles gave him a nickname, a name that described the character of this man who did all these things. It's the name that he would always be known for. It's the name that the Lord wanted us to remember him by. His name was Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. In the growth of the early church, encouragement was something that the apostles prized so much that they named this guy Son of Encouragement. Here he comes, the Son of Encouragement. They appreciated to have an encouragement, a courager in their midst. And you might think, well, the apostles, they didn't need encouragement. I mean, they walked with Jesus Christ. (laughs) They witnessed his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They were personally commissioned by the Lord to to spread the gospel, to build the church. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. They had all that going for them, and they still appreciated encouragement from a guy who's just a fellow believer named Joseph. And they said, we're going to give you a name, (laughs) Son of Encouragement. You and I need encouragement, too. As we're walking the path of obedience to Jesus, there are going to be things that tempt us to discouragement. There might have been something that happened in this last week that you're discouraged about. You may have brought it in here today. It's on your mind. It's this weight that's weighing you down. It's hanging over your head. And you might be discouraged. But here's some good news, friends. The church that the Lord is building is one where discouraged people find encouragement in Him. And He makes each one of us instrumental in getting that encouragement. His command is in verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So you are doing it. But keep doing it. Don't stop doing it. God wants to use you to build up one another. It's part of how we persevere in the faith. The apostles needed it. They were going to have a rough go. They all ended up as martyrs. It wasn't going to be an easy road. They needed encouragement. You and I need encouragement for our trials in life. And God's grace is available this morning to help us to get that encouragement and to be encouragers to one another. It's the community that he wants to build. So let's see what he has to say about encouragement 
Let's begin with a definition of sorts. To encourage is to put courage into one another. It's encourage. Put it in. Put courage into each other. There's three verbs used in the letter to the Thessalonians that mean encourage, that are often translated as encourage. And they're all in Thessalonians, these three. The first two are used here in verse 11, translated as encourage one another and build one another up. A third is a few verses later in verse 14, where it says encourage the faint-hearted. Those are all separate verbs in the original Greek, but they all get translated as some form of encouragement. The three verbs cover this range of nuance. The first one is to call somebody to your side for a heart-to-heart talk. The second one is used to describe erecting a building, building up. The third one means to cheer up or to comfort, like somebody who's faint-hearted. They give this overall picture about what encouragement is. When we encourage each other, We help each other go from sad, broken, or fearful to joyful, whole, and courageous. That's the building that's being erected in our souls through encouragement. With our words, we're putting courage into each other to to keep going down the path of following Christ. We're emboldened to take some course of action. We're strengthened in our faith. We're we're comforted in our affliction. We're renewed in our hope. That's what encouraging one another does when it's done as God intended. Now, doesn't that sound like something we could all use? (laughs) And if a whole church does that, doesn't that sound like an oasis of refreshment in our day-to-day lives? I mean, in any given week... You're going to hear or read plenty of talk intended to tear you down, dehumanize you, or fill your heart with fear. Or you encounter some situation, you hear some news that's going to have the same effect, And, and the internet is the main source of our exposure to all these things. The internet is a great resource. But it also brings all the problems of the world directly into your inbox. We know more that's wrong with the world now than we ever knew before the internet. I mean, you can have a flood of the negativity and scary stuff banging on your head every single moment. And the Lord knows that. So He put a mechanism in place for the church to counter that. Encourage one another. And build one another up. Put courage into each other because you're going to need it. Isn't it kind of the Lord to provide that for us? He does it because He loves us. And He wants us to do that for each other just like Barnabas did for the apostles. It's part of how we get through. It's part of how the church grows and how the gospel spreads. Now that all sounds good, but what's the next step? How do we grow in building each other up? Well, first we need to know what is there to be encouraged about, (laughs) right? You're less likely to encourage anyone else if you're not personally encouraged, if, if you don't know where hope is. 
And the kind of encouragement that Paul is talking about is the encouragement of the gospel, what we might call gospel realities. Gospel realities are the source of our encouragement to one another. We see that in our text. Verse 11 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. So therefore means that what comes before verse 11 is the basis for the command to encourage one another. The things I've just been telling you are encouraging, so therefore you should be encouraged about these things and encourage other, other people with those things. So what are those encouraging things that happen before verse 11? We'll call them gospel realities, which begin all the way back in chapter 4, verse 13. And they have to do with what happens to the believer in Jesus Christ who dies before Jesus returns. That was a pressing question that the Thessalonians had on their minds, and it was tempting them to discouragement. So to understand their situation, um, we need to get some, some background, some context for this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Why did he write this letter in the first place? We get the background in Acts 17, 1 through 10, and it describes how the church got started. Here's what happened. Paul and Silas, they came and they preached the gospel in this town called Thessalonica, and it was well received. It says, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women believed. And this happened all in the space of three Sabbaths, it says. Just like that, in three weeks of preaching, a new church was born from scratch. A great many people. This was better than like the, the Jesus Revolution movie. Like, the, I don't know if you've seen that, but I liked it. Anyway, it's about this wave of the Spirit in the 70s and people coming to Christ. Well, this, really, this was what's happening in Thessalonica. All these people are getting saved. Revival's breaking out. It's the kind of stuff we pray for. Great beginning. But immediately, there was persecution. Local Jews were jealous, it says. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They dragged some of the new believers before the authorities charging them with acting against the decrees of Caesar. So they want to shut this thing down and get everybody arrested. It got so intense that they sent Paul and, and Silas away uh, and said, you got to get out of town. And so they did. Before they had really any time to ground these new believers in all the riches of the gospel, they had only three weeks with them. And then they're out. They're gone too soon. So sometime later, Paul finds out some of the believers have died. Whether it was from persecution or from natural causes, we don't know. But in his letter, it appears that these believers don't have a good grasp on the believer's hope after death. They seem to be afraid that if you die before Jesus returns, you might miss out on the resurrection. And that's why Paul spends a lot of time addressing that in chapters 4 and 5. He speaks at length about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord's return, and what will happen to those who are asleep, meaning believers 
who have died, and he assures them they're going to be just fine. <laughs> now, we can't go into all that he says in chapters 4 and 5, but we did read the end of it, which was verses 8 through 10, which is the conclusion to the whole thing. And these are sort of a summary of the gospel realities that the Thessalonian believers needed to hear in order to be encouragers. And they're the same realities that are true for you and me in Christ that give us encouragement and something to, to encourage others with. They're gospel realities. That's the source of our encouragement. When we're encouraged by what we have in Christ, it has an effect on us. Our hearts enlarge towards others. Our, our love increases and we want to build up other people in the same truths that are building us up. We want to, to expand the joy to more people, and it increases our joy. And so this is what Paul gives them from chapter 4, verse 13, all the way up to chapter 5, verse 10. And in the middle, at the end of chapter 4, he says, encourage one another with these words, these words of gospel hope. That's, how I, that's what I want you to do for one another all the time. So what are these words? What is the gospel hope that's here? Let's revisit those verses 8 through 10 and get ourselves grounded in what we have to be encouraged about and to pass on. Verse 8 says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see the words faith, hope, and love in this verse. It's, it's this trio that occurs also at the beginning of the letter. He started the letter by commending these young baby believers for their work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. And here he pictures their faith, hope, and love like armor that protects them. A, a breastplate that protects their vital organs. A helmet that protects their head. The armor is the hope of salvation. And faith, hope, and love are the genuine evidence of their salvation. Faith that works out into labors of love and, and good works. Faith that's centered on the Lord Jesus Christ that puts hope in forgiveness of sins, that we have that hope. So Paul assures them that if faith, hope, and love describe you, you have armor. <laughs> you are protected. Your core life is safe even when you die. You won't perish eternally. You may lose a limb, so to speak. <laughs> you may be harmed by persecution and other trials. You will fall asleep in death one day, but sleepers wake up. Your core life is protected. You already have the breastplate. You have the helmet. God is protecting you from the ultimate consequences of sin, which is His wrath. And that's where verse 9 takes us. Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's about reassurance about the second coming and about life after death. When Christ returns, there will be a resurrection of everyone. Everybody. John, in John 5, 29, called it the resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. Everybody gets resurrected, but the final verdict and the final destination is not the same. Those who did not trust Christ are resurrected to face God's judgment and wrath for their unrepentant and unforgiven sins. That is a serious and sobering reality. We need to take that seriously. That's real. But if Jesus is your hope, your helmet, then you will not face the resurrection of judgment. When the believer dies, he or she faces the resurrection of life, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation, full and final restoration, not only of our souls, but our bodies as well, is what awaits the believer in Jesus Christ. This is what we are destined for. That's the word he used. You're destined for it. It's already decided. That's the road you're on. You will get there. You can't not get there. You're destined for complete restoration, body and soul. The end of life is not bad news for Christians. It's the beginning of life on a totally higher level. It's salvation completed. In verse 10, it finishes on that note, tells us the basis for the salvation, which is that our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Live with Him. On the cross, Jesus atoned for all the wrongs of those who had put their faith in Him as Savior. He bore the blame. He bore the punishment for our wrongdoing. And the moment you trust in Him for doing that, you are saved. You are counted righteous. You're forgiven everything. You have a perfect record credited to you, the record of the sinless Son of God. And that salvation, when it is completed, consists of living with Him, with Jesus. We already have the down payment on that in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Even right now, there's a living with Jesus that's happening with you as a believer. He is with you. He said to the disciples before He ascended to heaven, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age with you by My Spirit who indwells us. And in the resurrection, we will live with Him bodily. <laughs> we'll be able to touch Him like the disciples could when they said, is that really you? <laughs> said, see here my hands, see here my side. We will be with the one who loves us and gave His life for us forever. <clears throat> that was good news for the Thessalonian church. They were concerned about those who had fallen asleep, those who had died already. They didn't know what was going to happen for sure. And Paul says, don't worry, they're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You're all going to be fine in Christ. Those are gospel realities. 
They're the ones that that church needed to hear specifically. And so that's why he spent a lot of time on it. You and I might have different things going on, different aspects of the riches of Christ that we need to hear in order for us to be encouraged. Because we might be dealing with a totally different situation. Maybe it's relational issues, financial issues, despair over world events, all sorts of things that tempt us to discouragement. And there's, there's a word, there's a gospel reality that addresses that. There's a way to climb out and go from sadness to joy and brokenness to wholeness. There's a way. The gospel has a way for us. So let's make this like more recent. Uh, to give a different example. Uh, here's an example of how I was recently encouraged by gospel truth that was spoken to me when I was battling discouragement. In January, we had a regional pastors and wives retreat, and Bob and Julie Coughlin came and encouraged us about how the gospel makes a difference in our marriages. And that was very good. Lots of notes from that. But somewhere in there, parenting came up. And that rekindled in me a reservoir of regret over my parental failures over the years. Not that I had any specific failures in mind, but I just had this general awareness that I know I've missed important things that I should have done with the kids I didn't dis disciple them as well as I should have. I didn't prepare them adequately for life's complexity. And I general, generally had this feeling of being at fault for whatever they are struggling with now as adults. So I submitted, there was a Q&A time uh, with Bob later, and I submitted a question and, uh, that I wanted him to answer. And I asked, how do you process the knowledge of our failures in parenting knowing that we can't go back and do it all over again and that the consequences of failure seem permanent. Well, here's the gist of what Bob said. Two things. First, get the focus off yourself and onto the Lord. <laughs> get the focus off yourself and onto the Lord. Nobody will get relief from their guilt by looking more at their sin. We get relief from our guilt from our guilt by looking more at the Savior who atoned for it. Jesus died for your parental sins, and there's nothing you need to do now to atone for it, to make it right with God. It's been made right. It's been forgiven. Don't carry the weight of condemnation because Jesus carried it for you. Now, that started to build me up. That started to edify me. It adjusted me because I realized my immediate problem wasn't my past failures, it was my present unbelief. What I needed to deal with my regret was to believe the gospel and rest in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there was still this question I had about consequences. What if my failures as a parent actually did contribute to the challenges my kids now face? How do I deal with that? Here's where the second thing Bob said came into play. He quoted what Joseph said to his brothers when they were afraid that he was going to punish them for selling him into slavery. 
which they did. He said to them, Joseph did in Genesis 45.5, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. In other words, you sinned against me, and now you're angry with yourselves. You regret it. You know you did bad. <laughs> you failed. You sinned. You know that. I don't say you didn't. It was that. But don't be angry with yourself. Why? Because God sent me to preserve life. God is sovereign even over your sin, your failures. You acted wickedly, but God even had purposes in that. It led me, Joseph, to being second only to Pharaoh in Egypt so that I could be in a position to save you once the famine came. And that's what's happening. It wasn't just you who sent me into slavery. It was God who did it because that's part of His sovereign plan to preserve life. The point is, God is able to use your evil and my evil for good. I mean, He did that for the cross. That's the worst evil that's ever been committed on the planet. And it was through that that He brought life to us. So you don't know yet what God is working through your failures and your sins. But know this, God is working. God has purposes, even in the things you regret. And we don't know the final outcome yet, but He does. It's in His omnipotent hands, and He's got charge over that. He'll take care of that. The thing we do now is trust Him with the way things are right now. And don't try to atone for it. Just ask Him, what can I do today that will bring glory and honor to you? That's all. Don't go back. Don't, you don't want to relive it or rethink it and all that. Just what today? Well, how can I glorify you today? It's in your hands. I'm forgiven. You have something going on. Pray for them. <laughs> Keep asking, but we move forward. I can tell you that was a gospel reality that greatly encouraged me. Gospel hope is woven throughout the Scripture, and it's powerful to build us up in any circumstances. And we're called to bring that to each other. So let's finish with some practical guidelines on how we do that. How do we encourage each other? How do we put courage into each other so that we move from sad, broken, or fearful to joyful, whole, and courageous? Well, let's walk through some guidance for encouraging one another. It doesn't always need to be as involved as Bob Coughlin did for me. <laughs> I mean, after all, he's been thinking about this stuff for like 50 years, and it was a, like a formal teaching setting, so like, he was ready with that answer. <laughs> but you and I can be genuinely encouraging to people in big ways and small ways. So the first gu guideline, this is the big category over all of it, is we point others to the Lord. We point, we point each other to the Lord. That's what Bob was doing for me. That's what Paul was doing for the Thessalonians. Christ is our hope in life and death. 
We're going to sing a song with that name in it at the end. We point to Him. He's our hope. Discouragement might seem natural. It might even seem inevitable, unavoidable. But actually, it's a product of unbelief. It's not something that just happens to us. It's the result of something we're actively doing, which is not believing the real glories of Christ. We're looking too much at our problems and ourselves and not enough at Jesus who died for us that we might live with Him now and forever. So there is a way out of discouragement. It's repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> believe that God is bigger than our sins and bigger than our problems and that He loves us, that He's in our life to do you good things. He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? It's Romans 8.32. If God sent Jesus to the cross to save you, which was the biggest thing He could do for the biggest problem we have, then can He not also be trusted to give us what we need each day to walk the path of obedience to Him? So we make it a habit to keep looking, looking to Him. That's, he's the Savior. It's what He does. <laughs> we look to our Savior. Gospel realities like that encourage us, but we lose sight in the moment of despair. And that's why we need somebody else to come alongside of us, another kind of a Barnabas person to speak into us life. So that's the big principle, point to the Lord. But here's another one. Share evidences of God's grace that you see in others. So this is also part of that pointing people to the Lord, but in a specific way, share evidences of God's grace that you see in others. If a person is a genuine follower of Jesus, then God has begun a good work in them, which He will be faithful to complete. There will be evidences of God's grace in their lives. There will be works of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. All things that Paul pointed out to and commended the Thessalonian church for. He pointed those evidences of grace out to them. And when we take time to point out something in another person, it's an encouragement to them that they really do belong to Jesus, that He's involved He's doing stuff in their lives. He is with them. And that is encouraging. Remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement? In Acts 11, he was sent to the church in Antioch to provide leadership there. And here's what he said when he first got to the church and saw what was going on. It says, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The grace of God is something that you can see. When he saw the grace of God, he saw evidence God is working here. God is being gracious here. He says, he encouraged, he exhorted, that's the same word for encourage. He encouraged them all to remain faithful. So they are faithful, remain faithful. God's grace is here. You're faithful. So keep going. He encouraged them with evidences of God's grace. That's something that we can all do. If we see something that looks and feels like the grace of God at work in somebody, 
we can just point that out to them and say, hey, here's something I noticed. Maybe it was an act of selfless service. Maybe it was somebody hanging on to a promise of God even when life is hard. Maybe it was something another person said or taught that you found really helpful, and you just say, that was really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. We see it, and we encourage them with it. And the reason we do this is because most of the time, we are not personally aware of how God is at work in us. We're too close to it. Like, if you're like me, we're more aware of the things that we're doing wrong more aware of the faults that we see. And we need a Barnabas to say, ah, but there's also grace. There's also this, the Lord is with you, and we get built up. This is something we've done for a long time at our birthday dinners for each of our adult kids. We go around the table while we're eating cake, and we point out evidences of grace to the birthday boy or girl, adults now, not really boy and girl, but we go around and we share evidences of grace. Now, full disclosure, I think they're getting a little tired of it. <laughs> Encouragement that is always or only given on cue, only when you know it's supposed to come, can start to feel artificial and contrived and something you made up in the moment. Um, and that ends up not being encouraging. But we have been trying to develop it as a habit that should go beyond birthdays. If we never even celebrate evidences of grace on a day where we're celebrating somebody, we're not likely going to do that day by day either. So we're trying to work a habit into our lives by doing it. And a simple encouragement, simply pointing out God's grace in a person, is what we can do any day of the week. And it makes a difference in our souls. I follow a few friends on, on the Caring Bridge website where you can read their journey uh, as they're going through a severe trial. Usually it's medical in nature. And I saw this note at the bottom of the page to persuade people to leave a comment for the person. And it said, did you know a quick comment, no matter the situation, can boost morale by 28.2%? Now, I don't know how a morale boost can be measured to a, to a tenth of a percent. I mean, I want to know how that experiment was conducted. But I think the point is accurate. A word of encouragement builds up a person, and it doesn't have to be elaborate. It just needs to be true. And we can't, a person, we can't assume a person doesn't need it only because they seem like they're not down or discouraged. So much of our discouragement is internalized, and we're trying not to show it. But your one little word of thanks or commendation, pointing out what's God doing, could be the thing that actually gives them more than 28.2%. It could go all the way up to, okay, I can make it through this day. <clears throat> Here's the last guideline match a scripture to a person's discouragement. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, 
we might have hope. There is encouragement to be found in the Scriptures, in whatever was written in former days and collected in our Bibles. It was true of the Old Testament in Paul's day, and now it is also true of the New Testament that we have also. Whatever is tempting you to discouragement today has something that was written in former days to encourage you today and give you hope. There's a scripture passage, there's a scriptural principle that was written to match your discouragement to pull you out of it. The entire Bible is useful for this. Who knew that the story of Joseph and his brothers would have application to my parenting regrets? Well, God knew, which is why He wrote it. <laughs> it was written for our instruction that through encouragement and hope, or you, endurance and hope, encouragement, we might have hope. I mean, He wrote it with you in mind. He wrote it with me in mind. He didn't write it just for the old people way back when. He wrote it for you today. Like, it's relevant today. There's encouragement to be found everywhere in whatever was written in former days. God is called the God of endurance and encouragement in Romans 15, 5. He intended it. He intended this book to do it. He intends to do it through His Spirit. He intends to do it through each of us. So the more we know our Bibles the more material we have to match a scripture to a person's discouragement. And the more specific it is, the more impact it has. General encouragement is fine. It's fine to say God loves you, but specific encouragement encourages specifically. And it really pierces through. Like, I still remember what Bob said back in January, because that was direct that applied to my situation powerfully. <clears throat> and so the more that we know, the more Scripture that we have stored away in our hearts, stored away where we can get it in our Bibles, the more good we can do, the more encouragement we can give each other. And encouragement to like just soak in your Bibles. Just soak it in. <laughs> soak it in and like dish it out. <laughs> Somebody's waiting, for, waiting to hear what you just learned. Guaranteed. I'll close with this. Isn't it a wonderful environment that the Lord wants for Sovereign Grace Church? The God of encouragement intends to put courage into each of us as we're following Jesus day by day. He wants this to be a place where you could walk in discouraged and walk out encouraged. He means that for our discipleship groups. He means that for our women's meeting next week. He means that for the one-on-one -on -one coffees over, you know, at Starbucks. He's, he, he is for us. He wants us to be built up. And we have a part to play in it. That is a beautiful thing to be a part of. In a world where tearing down everything is the norm, the Lord's creating an environment where world-weary people are getting built up, having courage put into them as we walk in obedience to Christ. I want to be a part of that. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your encouragement, the encouragement of the Scriptures, the encouragement of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. How good you are to us.
but we don't always see it. So, Lord, help us to lean in into your word, but also into the church, the environment where you intend for us to be built up. We thank you for what you've done here. We thank you for the encouragement that already exists. Now help us to press on and to do more, to encourage one another and build one another up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. I'm going to try to memorize those three points and encourage.